Welcome to the Well Said Podcast, presented by Speech First. Free speech on college campuses under attack. They usually weaponize harassment policies and bias reporting systems. The lawsuit filed by Speech First claims that TSU and its officials have, quote, deter, suppress, and punish constitutionally protected speech. A petition from Speech First, a First Amendment group called for the dean's removal. Well, now the dean is on leave. Here's your host, Sharice Trump. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Well Said, where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, activists, and others on topics of higher education, free speech, and other related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook or YouTube, as well as on any podcast platform such as Apple, Spotify, uh, Anchor, Ricochet. Download the episode and listen anytime. If you like what you heard today, give our podcast a five-star rating and go to our website, speechfirst.org, and press donate. Today on our show, David Bernstein joins us us to discuss ever-relevant topics on issues that he actually outlines in his book, I have it here, Woke Anti-Semitism, How Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. As we have seen the horrific acts by Hamas on the people of Israel, and we brace ourselves for what could be one of the bloodiest wars in the region, Americans have taken notice of the reactions of our university leadership and our college students who are in some cases actually defending the actions of Hamas and and they continue to advocate for more actions by Hamas. So as shocking as this may seem to many who have not been following the sentiments and culture issues on college campuses, I think David and I are honestly not too surprised. If you'll recall previous episodes of Well Said, we've covered the anti-Semitism found in DEI departments on campuses across the country, as well as trying to understand why college campuses have been overtaken by various political movements, such as the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Initiative against Israel. So while trying to understand how these political movements are able to grow and ferment on college campuses, we must first understand how and why traditionally liberal institutions are susceptible to anti-Semitic sentiments to begin with. So thank you, David, for joining us. I'm looking forward to having this conversation and and really digging into um, the history here and the origins of some of these thoughts. So let's let's get into this. Um, Let's start talking about it. What first I want to ask you kind of like what initiated the writing of this book? Like what did you see happening on campuses or in institutions that drove you to um, to really uh, want to not only put it down in a book, but also start to realize that no one else was seeing this and that you needed to write about it? Yeah. So, you know, I've been actually on the center left side of the Jewish world my entire life. I've run Jewish advocacy organizations. I've stood up for certain ideas around uh, around you know criminal justice reform and church state separation and you know same sex marriage and and the like and so I watched with interest what happens in my own backyard my own ideological backyard and going back even more than twenty years ago I started to see some serious warning signs on the left um, I um, in the in late nineteen nineties I was a young staffer at that time. Um, I uh, I was part of this leadership group, and uh, we had a multi we had two days of multiculturalism. And in those days, that you know, there was no DEI at, at, in those days. It was just multiculturalism, and I was kind of psyched for it. I thought it was going to be an interesting couple of days, and I was stunned at what actually happened. Uh, they started out by saying that racism equals prejudice plus power. 
And I thought to myself, wait a second, I always thought that racism was just animus towards another minority group. And yet here we were told that, you know, that this was the new definition of racism. And that um, it meant for me that Jews would be associated with people in power. And so therefore they couldn't be victims of of racism, and that um, any group that's perceived as being powerless will not be viewed as a perpetrator. And um, and I wrote about it even in the early 2000s, and I warned the Jewish community, if this stuff catches on, we're going to be in trouble. But I also worried that it was illiberal in a basic sense. I warned colleagues about it over and over. In 2016, I think I wrote the first major sort of popular um, op-ed about intersectionality in the Jewish community. And I warned that if this idea, as it's being presented now, continues to catch on, we're going to be in trouble. And the, the, the response was just fast and furious. Uh, hmm. There were like nine op-eds condemning me for my my views on it. And I thought, okay, wow, I've struck a nerve here. And um, and and then of course there was the you know the great reckoning after George Floyd. And I started to see really deep-seated examples of this within the Jewish community itself. And that made me even more nervous. And I left in um, February 2021 and shortly thereafter founded the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, pushed back against this ideology in the Jewish world. And at that very time when I started in May 2021, there was a war with Hamas. And I realized that Israel was being given no benefit of the doubt at all. In previous conflicts, like Israel usually had like three days in which the mainstream press would give it the benefit of the doubt, say, okay, of course it has to respond to Gaza rocket fire. But then, of course, there would be some casualties and Israel would be reined in and the like. That didn't happen in 2021. I knew that something else was foot. And so that's why I, when I knew I had to write the book. Great. That, yeah, that's that's kind of really interesting. And I'm kind of curious. So. Where did you want to start when you when you were thinking about this book? Did you initially say, like, I've got to like trace the origins all the way back to like this like Marxist ideology, like go even deep further back in history? Or were you initially just setting out to just kind of explain the current phenomenon? And I'm just kind of curious how how the the concepts developed. Because most most of your book is actually about how the institutions were taken over. So I'm kind of curious how, as you started the research, this kept going further and further back. Yeah, that's it's interesting. So I had read along the way Cynical Theories, which is by Helen Pluckrose and James yeah. Lindsay, which really goes into the nature of the ideology itself and how it how it developed and how, the various forms it takes. And so I had I had read that well before I had written my book. So I had some inkling of it. Um I had also read a very important essay by Tammy Rossman Benjamin, who's was a professor at UC Santa Cruz, and she's an activist now, um, fighting back against these trends on college campuses. Mm -hmm. um, and she had written an essay about the long march through institutions, how um, how these sort of postmodernist philosophers and, and ideologues were able to take over institutions starting, let's say, in the late 1960s, 1968 was a critical year. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I, I saw that piece and I included a lot of that in my analysis as well, because I realized that's why, for example, we're dealing with ethnic studies. Yeah. And California's K through 12 system and now spreading around the country. It's because these professors started with universities, got these ideas embedded, and then then were used they use that to proselytize K through 12 schools as well. Yeah. And so can you can you uh, walk us through a little bit just some of the um the connections between this kind of Marxist ideology, this Marxist out uh, worldview and and how what what the 
the tie, the connection is with anti-Semitic outlooks, because I think this is where um, this is an important part to understand, but it's also not often connected for a lot of folks directly. Sure. So I see what we're facing, whether we call it woke ideology or critical social justice ideology, whatever we want to call it, as as being built upon a Marxist framework, but not being Marxism. I mean, there are Marxists that I know who cannot stand wokeism. They think it is a fundamental, you know, a twisting distortion of Marxism, and they can't and, and they push back against it. Freddie Dubois is one of them. Batya Unger Sargon, I think, also regards herself as as a Marxist in the old sense. So, um, so I, I what it what it was is you had people like Herbert Marcuse and others who were postmodern philosophers and also Marxists who understood that America was not going to be overthrown in a violent revolution. And that's why they introduced ideas like the long march through, instit- through the institutions. So that was a departure already. And they changed sort of the framework from, you know, proletariat and, and bourgeoisie to sort of race and, and gender and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they thought that that would be more likely to move people in that direction. Um, and uh, and that 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 caught on over time. Of course, they've been remarkably successful in their march through institutions. It just what this does is it lays out a very clear understanding of who has power and who doesn't, right. and therefore who has agency and who doesn't, and therefore who can be the oppressor and who is going to be the oppressed. It right. lays out a very clear linkage between one's identity and one's oppression or privilege. And I think in that rigidity itself, you end up this idea that Jews who succeed on average more than other many other ethnic minority communities must be part of the oppressed class because it's the only allowable explanation. If the only way that you're able to look at disparity and and say this is a function of oppression or discrimination, then how else can one minority do better than another minority if not for complicity in white supremacy or whatever? And I think that's why you end up inexorably with anti-Semitism, because uh, because Jews are perceived as, on average, you know, economically successful or on average as uh, educationally successful, and um, and so you you have to conclude then, then that's why they're successful. They're doing it on the backs of other minorities. Right, and I I think. So can we let's connect this to to Israel, too, because I think what there were there's also a lot of confusion is the connection of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And in most cases, the overlap that is, in my opinion, anti-Zionism is used as a way to cloak anti-Semitism so people can get away with expressing that sentiment. But I'm curious what your thoughts are and how the how this leftist progressive ideology connects those two. Uh, to one another. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because there's another dimension here that also took shape in the late 1960s. Mm -hmm. Um, After Israel won decisively in 1967, Six Day War, the Soviet Union uh, launched an an anti-Zionist campaign in order to discredit Zionism. Um, And um, they actually invented a field called Zionology, which was how Zionism was this oppressive ideology and the like. And they they wrote books about it, highly popular books. And that then led to, you know, sort of the Zionism is racism idea. And and that was popular in post-colonial circles too. So they influenced post-colonial thought as well, which is really what we're talking about here. It's like wokeism Mm -hmm is post-colonialism applied domestically. It's this idea that the like the global north oppresses the global south. 
or that, you know, that once colonial powers are still engaging in their colonial project through ideas and knowledge and dissemination and the like. So um, so you had really a, a deeply influenced uh, left that came out of the Soviet Union and the Soviet experience and uh, their attacks on Zionism. And, and that's why I think Zionism and Israelis are viewed as sort of the paradigmatic oppressors, right? They're mm -hmm. the, they're viewed as a colonial project. They can't see them otherwise. So th that's deeply embedded. And so in some ways, Zionism is almost like the key litmus test for being part of the intersectional left. Like you, you have to agree with us on that one question if you're going to be yeah. part of the club. And um, and so Israel is just swept into that worldview. Um, and is treated as the perennial oppressor. And if you start out believing that, then you cannot believe anything else. Like, it, 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 so that's why, you know, the, the professors of ethnic studies, like there's something called the Coalition for Ethnic Studies, Liberated uh -huh. Ethnic Studies, they were sending out memes before the blood had even dried on the pavement in Israel. Yeah. They were sending out memes, you know, that were praising the Palestinian resistance, which is a code word for Hamas's murderous terrorist attacks. Um, and it comes out of that ideology, like Israel must be the oppressor because it is always the oppressor. It is the colonial power that is oppressing them. So anything that the press does is resistance and anything the oppressor does, no matter mm -hmm. how humane, is oppressive. So then, so you mentioned the the actors on campuses who are, you know, in a lot of ways, they are administrators or faculty members who are kind of leading the charge uh, here. But I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on there's a lot of students who, and maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but don't who aren't Palestinian on campuses who are in this, who kind of swept up into this far left movement. Um, is there any? It's, I mean, I'm just. What are your thoughts on how these students kind of get swept into pro Palestine, pro Hamas rallies? even after all the evidence is exposed, and I know you kind of touched on some of these themes um, in your previous comments, but I guess it's like, I can understand why a Palestinian themselves would want to go advocate for this thing because they, it is their home, their country. But I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are on the others who are, is it just willful ignorance or is there something else more going on here? I mean, there is willful ignorance involved for sure. Um, but, um, but I think going back to that idea that either you're the oppressor or the oppressor, and going right. back to this idea that only people with lived experience of oppression get to define the world for you, if that's your ideology, mm -hmm. and in some ways that's what wokeism is, is an ideology it's a, uh, that says that you know the, the oppressed get to define their condition for everyone else, and we have to yeah. defer to that. It's sometimes referred to as identitarian deference. Um, and um, so let's say you are part of the Harvard uh, progressive community, okay? And you work together on issues from climate change to sex violence on campus and so forth. And one of your member groups, let's say a Students for Justice in Palestine says, Israel is responsible for this. The tendency will be because they're the oppressed voice to go along with their perspective because they have lived experience and we should defer to lived experience. And in this case, it's a you know, Palestinian lived experience is going to take you a long way. So even if you might be horrified at what you saw in your another student group and that initial four-way, you might say, well, we have to go by the lived experience of our allies in this uh, students for justice in Palestine. 
Right. Uh, you saw this phenomenon a bit with the Democratic Socialists of America, where their initial response was to completely justify it, everything that the Hamas murderers just did in Israel. And um, and then later, there was sort of a secondary response from many people like, well, maybe we shouldn't have gone that far. Yeah. Some people resigned and the like. Do I think that that initial response from the, uh, the Democratic Socialists of America represented everybody in their ranks or even most? Probably not. I can't I, I didn't do a poll, but I would think that a lot of people probably had would have had qualms about it. But they feel frozen in the mm. face of these allegations from people who they're supposed to defer to. Right. And that's where I think the phenomena you're seeing on, on campuses as well. Because everything is such a black and white dichotomy, like the, it, the, you're either for the oppressed group or you're for the oppressor group. And that's there's, there's that, no it's who you it's room for nuance. Who's demanding it of you matters. Right. Mm, okay. It's not just what you think and what the in the ideology, but if somebody who's oppressor says you have to think this way, then you have to think this way. Yeah. Um, and um, and and you have to be an ally. No, because right. because to, to them. And so, and th- th- this is so interesting because a lot, I feel like there are a lot of students who, again, like are just kind of captured by this movement. And then suddenly they find themselves defending terrorists um, and they really don't know how to get out of that. And, you know, I talk a lot about, uh, you know, how this anti-Semitism has existed actually for a long time on college campuses, because we could talk about like how the left has, you know, like we said, March for the Institutions taken over the campus and essentially kind of created these more friendly environments um, for things like anti-Semitism and other tyrannical viewpoints. Um, but I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on this boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement that has uh, for years taken campuses by storm. Because again, um, there it, it does seem that there's some additional connection here, whether it be from national organizations funding this um, or trying to influence it. But it seems like there are there are just so many more advocates for very specific political agendas like this one against Jews, against the state of Israel that are a little above like the typical progressive, um, you know, trope, essentially. So. Yeah, look, you have very motivated constituencies on a campus, right? Mm. You uh, you have both, um, you know, Muslim Palestinian students who are there who have very strongly held views. You have professors who have been part of post-colonial movements and, you know, were inculcated in the anti-Zionist ideology. And it creates sort of a perfect storm on campus where mm-hmm. Israel become, becomes the, you know, the penultimate boogeyman of, of, the, of the left. Um, and you have, by the way, money coming from places like Qatar, which mm. funds oh, yeah. specifically these That's kind guys. of what I was alluding to. Yeah, I wanted yeah. you to talk about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been, I heard the figure, something like $10 billion has yeah. come from Qatar in the last decade or so toward campuses. And there have been some forensic analysis uh, of, of the money trail from Qatar to university campuses. I think that's a huge aspect of this, sometimes an underreported aspect of this. It's made complicated because the United States clearly, at least the, uh, the the current White House thinks that it has, uh, that Qatar is an important ally in some of yeah. its efforts. Um, and so it, it's not willing to challenge them on some of these, some of these issues. But I think that, uh, that that is certainly part of the dynamics. In some ways, Qatar is the new Saudi Arabia, like after hmm. Saudi Arabia after 911. Right. Clearly, you it had made peace with all these clerics who then went out and urged funding of these, you know, 
of al-Qaeda and other terrorist causes, certainly Hamas. And Saudi Arabia understood that it had to go in a different direction. It did go into a different direction over, over a period of 20 years, whereas Qatar now has been, uh, you know, has been funding from behind the scenes a lot of these causes yeah. and, um, and has been fueling the ideological craziness on campus. And we've got to we've got to push back against that, I think. We've got to call them out for that. We've got to find legislative ways if possible that are legal to uh to challenge them. Yeah. And I think this is this is something I was just talking to someone else about this too. Um how we're not calling them out. And it's actually a little ironic that um Secretary Blinken wants to work with the Qataris on this, considering their level of support and overt support of Hamas. Honestly, like the headquarters, uh, the leadership stays in Qatar under their protection. And again, like these billions of dollars that the last administration, the Trump administration, had actually done the forensic digging into um, the financials of a lot of foreign funding for universities and found these billions of dollars from Qatar specifically. Um that work that could be linked to, you know, BDS initiatives or anti-Semitic professors on campus. But so, I, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. They need to be called out. There needs to be some legislative action taking place. I'm a little harder on them than you are. And that I would say they, they're beyond Saudi Arabia and that I put them closer to Iran and their complicitness in this and that they try to play middleman, um, but they really are not neutral at all. And they have yeah. they are incredibly an anti-Semitic country and they have they ultimately would rather get rid of Israel than, in my opinion, do like any kind of business deal with them like Saudi Arabia is attempting to do right now. And the crazy thing about Qatar, and I might, I'm not, I don't remember, this is not a, the numbers are not perfect here, but mm -hmm. um, there's something like 3 million people and only 300,000 real Qataris. So you yeah. have 300,000 people who, you know, derive their wealth from oil, who are able to play such a, disastrous role in in America's intellectual life. It's, yeah. uh, and I think we should be we should we should be stunned by that and yeah. push back against it accordingly. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about that a little bit. I'm always I'm always uh, welcome uh, an opportunity to call out the Qataris on, <laughs> on the podcast. Um because they, like you said they don't get enough attention uh, and it's because they they are professional lobbyists. This is what that country has built its um its exports around is essentially their ability to lobby and to influence American and Western politics. Um, okay. So I did want to get into this a little bit more because this is something I think a lot of people actually are curious about as well. Um, when we're talking about the left's capture of Jewish institutions, first, I want you to kind of walk us through like the various ways some of the institutions, um, the most important ones that have, have actually been captured by the far left. Um, but then also, can you answer the question, like why are American Jews, uh, especially American American Jews so attracted to liberal politics, especially after, you know, just looking at the blatant amount of anti-Jew rhetoric that's coming out of the left, um, his, just historically and even today. Yeah. So a couple of things. First, let me answer the, 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 the second question first, in a way, you know, American Jews are different than other diaspora Jewish communities. <laughs> you can even go to our, 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 um, you know, allied to the North in Canada and see a very different dynamic at play there. American uh, Canadian Jews are not nearly as attached to the Canadian left. They don't have the same hmm. history. Um, I think American Jews decided a long time ago that they were that that the that uh, the right wing was more dangerous than the left wing, and they saw um, themselves as allies in the civil rights struggle. And there's a deep seated psychological need among American Jews to remain aligned with the left. Hmm. Um, and um, you know, look. 
for a lot of American Jews, they see like an Alex Jones style figure is really scary, right? Now I understand that Alex Jones doesn't represent the right, but um, but you know there are aspects of the MAGA right that are very scary to a lot of a lot of American Jews, and and that and so they they it continues to sort of entrench their political identities um on on the left even if there are problems on the left this may reverse some of that though because it's just so stunning and i think people right. are genuinely shell-shocked even jewish leftists who yeah. are just are, are are starting to complain like couldn't you have at least expressed a little compassion toward israelis um after that like they were they were shell-shocked themselves so um i think this um yeah. this could be a bit of a wake-up call it might present some new dynamics to the situation um to what degree have American Jewish organizations, mainstream organizations become captured? I think it's complicated. Look, American Jews in general and many of the Jewish organizations that I've been part of, and I've been a part of many of the mainstream organizations, to varying degrees have, have a deep classical liberal core. Like mm-hmm. they debate issues. Like that is part of their culture. There's this idea in Judaism called Machloket L'Shem Shemayim, arguments for the sake of heaven, that really is part of who we are as a tradition. And the idea that we would shut down debate over key social questions is completely antithetical to Jewish life, but it's exactly what wokeism demands. And so I think that a lot of Jewish organizations are going to have trouble with this because on the one hand, they desperately want to remain aligned with the civil rights community, with progressive forces in their community. And on the other they realize that this is antithetical to open ex- the free expression of ideas, mm-hmm. and um, and and it puts those two values, those two interests against each other. And then come along comes along October seventh, two thousand twenty three, and they see how that shit crazy the left can be. <laughs> they see it in two ways. The first are sort of what I the, I would call the hardcore decolonizers, and these are the people who have no subtlety at all. They just like outright, you know, congratulated yeah. on Hamas for their victory. Right. And then you have sort of the mealy mouth presidents of universities, I'm sure we're going to talk about, and school superintendents and DEI people and others who, you know, might have been horrified at what they saw and even expressed some of that. But because they have this script running through their heads that Jews are part of the powerful class and Muslims aren't, they mm-hmm. feel like they can't really speak clearly about this. And again, I think, you know, and and by the way, the hardcore left does not really like the soft core DEI left. They think that they're just wimps. But, um, and, and the hardcore left is deeply influential. I mean, they're the ones who have promulgated the, these ideas in universities that have then created their own form of this in the corporate sector and elsewhere. And I think that's what you have. You have sort of one that's the hardcore left, which is deeply anti-capitalist and believes you have to overturn the whole system. And then the sort of soft core left, which which is trying to integrate this into capitalism and wants to take advantage of it economically and the rest. So you have this DEI industry that functions very well within a capitalist system. And and, and they're not exactly, I think, you know, that's why I I try to be a little bit, I try to delineate there because they don't sound exactly like each other, even though they're influenced by the same ideological trends. So I think in the Jewish community, you have groups that I think have gone off the deep end. I like to say that they've signed on the dotted line of deference. They've they've decided that they're not qualified to have an independent opinion on these issues of racial justice. They hire a DEI director or something like that, Uh or bring in a consultancy, and now they don't have any room to maneuver because they've, they're that clear on where they were going. And I've heard this from people. 
think a lot of other institutions sort of made half-hearted commitments to this. They said all the quote-unquote right things about systemic racism in the wake of George Floyd, but they didn't sort of bury themselves in these commitments. And I think some of those are at play. And sometimes there are different branches of the same institution that have different attitudes about this. So if you look at the ADL, for example, Mm -hmm. um, I think the ADL does have some core liberal values and has some constituencies. By the way, same with the ACLU. There are still people in the ACLU that are fighting the good fight for the traditional view of civil liberties, but they've been overwhelmed by their sort of woke progressive wing. ADL has also a woke progressive wing in its educational work. It has programs like Disrupting Bias that Mm -hmm. I think are just way way woke. And yeah. I think, and I've, I've accused them, and I know this is a hard, these are harsh words of fighting on both sides of the war on anti-Semitism, because on the one hand, they're fighting the the leftist version, like, you know, Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO, says some very, right. you know, pointed things about uh, what he's seeing. And, and, and he's been amazing on TV in the last in the last two right. weeks. But he, yeah. but he also has a branch of his own organization that's been promulgating some of these ideas that I think creates the conditions on which this grows out of. So I think these organizations have to face their their internal tensions and their cognitive dissonance. And I'm yeah. hoping that this this set of events you know, has some silver lining in them. Yeah, I want to, okay, there's a lot to tease out there because like uh, there's a couple things I want to I want to emphasize a little bit more before we start talking more about the university reactions because I do want to get your take on the university leadership, their reactions to everything um, and and kind of more specifically what the, what the future holds for uh, these institutions, especially when we see Jewish communities now having to confront the cognitive dissonance between the stuff that they've been supporting and promulgating versus the reactions and results that they're seeing today um, with regards to Hamas. Um, but you, you've mentioned something a couple of times, uh, and I do want to just kind of bring this up because I think it's interesting, uh, the lived experience idea. So this, this Jewish deference to DEI, uh, to let them take on the moral questions of racism and racial issues, um, because, and this is something I talk a lot to students about, that because there's an issue um, with people when they debate, when they have these critical conversations about objective truths, like trying to seek that truth, trying to actually tease something out or a policy issue. Um, but then immediately, you know, saying that I, you know, it, well, I know this is to be true because of my experience or because I am a Palestinian, for example, and I've seen it firsthand. And then suddenly the authority that that lived experience takes in the discussion completely derails the debate. You can no longer have an objective conversation because now it's all based on one individual's personal experiences, and you're not talking about the bigger issue anymore. Um, and those, so tell me more about kind of yeah. this, this deference and kind of what your thoughts are on all that. Yeah, I've written a lot about this as well. I wrote a piece in Persuasion about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sometimes called standpoint epistemology or standpoint positionality. Um, your standpoint gives you unique knowledge. Um, I like to say, like, you know, some of these ideas that emerge out of wokeness have some validity, but they're taken to extremes where Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they ripen into dogma. So, of course, having lived experience of of something or having a certain position on something can give you some insights that others don't have. So, look, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio in the 1970s and 80s. Um, When I was in high school, I experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, like a lot of points thrown at my feet or swastikas in my books and the like. Mm. So I'd like to think that people would want to hear me out on my my lived experience with anti-Semitism. That said, 
there are a lot of other Jews who have a totally different experience. And, and so I don't know why my experience should be prejudiced in the, in the public conversation over their experience. And right. moreover, lived experience is not the only data point. So when the Pew survey in 2019 shows that on average, Americans think that, um, or Americans admire American Jews more than any other religious community, that's a data point as well, just as lived experience is a data point. And it can't be the only data point. Lived experience can't be the only data point. And, and, and that's really where the conversation breaks down. And we, we've got to push back against it. The idea that one's lived experience gives one unique knowledge that should shut down the conversation. It's ridiculous. I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous. And um, and and you know, it is the root cause of of cancel culture because it's used to it's weaponized to say, if you don't agree with my understanding of systemic racism or whatever else, that means that you're talking from a place of privilege. And talking from a place of privilege means that you don't have the lived experience to justify your perspective. So that's where we've really got to push back against uh, against some of these people and, and to train students yeah. to understand why that's just such faulty logic. Right, right. Absolutely. Um, okay. One more thing I want to chat about before we dig into some of the universities and the institutions is we were talking about other institutions, like some of these organizations, like the ADL, which is the Anti-Defamation League, for those who, um, who don't know, um, and seeing, again, like how they have programs that support um, far left, radical extreme like woke dogmas but then also are now seeing how maybe or maybe they're not seeing i don't know i'm kind of curious your thoughts are are they actually making the connections here um is the cognitive dissonance getting teased out or how are these institutions going to cope and react to this you saw greenblatt like you mentioned um on on cnn uh where he talks about how uh, how the, the like people are supporting the destruction of jewish uh jewish people um but is there a connection here that they're supporting uh, programs and ideas that are leading to their own demise? Because um, I think well, I that's, also- our, that's our argument with them. Like right. my organization exists to help them connect the dots. And there's yeah. fierce opposition to them connecting the dots, sometimes yeah. among their own team, sometimes in the broader Jewish community. There are people who say you cannot connect the dots. That will hurt us. That will harm us by connecting the dots, by making the argument you make that there's a relationship between this ideology that makes me feel um, connected to what's happening on the left and um, and what's happening to us at the same time. It's very right. hard. There's a lot of cognitive dissonance on this. Um, and I say, you don't have to agree with me. Just let's talk about it. Let's hear the arguments because a lot of people secretly agree right. that it's a problem. You know, uh, Jonathan Greenblatt from the ADL and others talk openly about what happens on the right, the ideological underpinnings of the right. So we talk, he talks about the right, I think aptly as like a hurricane and anti-Semitism on the left, like climate change. You know, so on the right, it's very fast moving, it's violent and so forth. It's what you saw at Squirrel Hill when, when 11 Jews were murdered in a synagogue. Um, and on the left, it's what we see from, you know, woke ideology that grows. I think we've seen a little bit of hurricane on the left too this in this past 10 days as well. Yeah, I'd say a, little, a lot, lot of hurricane. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of hurricane, a lot of hurricane, yeah. uh, you know, um, Katrina here. Uh, yeah. But, um, but you know, th- and I think though, the, in general, though, it's a pretty good analogy. But the problem is we talk about the ideological underpinnings of anti-Semitism on the right, like the great replacement theory, mm-hmm. uh, blood libel and so forth. But. We don't talk about the ideological CO2 emissions that produce the anti-Semitism on the left. That somehow is beyond the pale. And I think that's a real blind spot in the Jewish world. Um, there, and and the, the challenge for people like me is to sort of legitimize that conversation. 
right. to give and to create critical mass around that conversation so that more and more mainstream Jews are able to say, guys, I'm sorry, we must have this conversation because we can't fight anti-Semitism that we don't properly understand. Well, the interesting thing is some of the stuff you just brought up, I'm seeing a lot of those talking points on the far left now, the blood libel, like all that stuff is like, especially even more so now, but yeah. um, any, all, and all the anti-Israel rhetoric, uh, you know, uh, which is expressed by the, the left, they're using identical to almost identical talking points um, as as the, the anti-Semites of the historical far right. You know, it's. Yeah, there's something called horseshoe theory, which is the idea the farther <laughs> that you go in one direction, the more you end up the other. I think they're also cyclical too. Like hmm. the more um the more extreme the left gets with its identity politics and assertions of, of grievances in the public sphere, the more that a white person from a poor, poor community doesn't want to be called privileged is going to start to identify not as an American, but as a white person and to start to develop a similarly hmm. sounding identity politics uh, um, of whiteness that I think is quite dangerous itself. And um and so I think that the you know I, I I'm making the argument, guys, if for no other reason, with this extreme identity politics, because it's actually producing a, a reaction yeah. on the right that you should fear. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, it's it's definitely creating reactions on the right that are certainly more extreme than the right has ever looked before. And I what I think is so I, I want to get back a little bit just to the cognitive dissonance because what I find most fascinating is I'm, I'm sure you saw this like not too long ago. Um, I think it was either Black Lives Matter or one of these kind of more woke institutions put out a pyramid of privilege. And on the very top of that pyramid, they put the Jewish people. And so how are groups like ADL or APAC, again, like how is it so easy for them to just ignore and like toe the line of the left when the left is being pretty blatant about their anti-Semitic views? Yeah, so the way that this usually happens is that the mainstream Jewish organization will make peace with the ideology as long as it doesn't directly implicate Jews. So, for example, <laughs> let's say you have a school district in California that wants to teach liberated ethnic studies, and they're teaching this ideology around settler colonialism. If you explicitly mention Israel as a settler colonial state, they'll go, they'll go ballistic. Mm -hmm. And they'll push back as hard as you possibly can. But if you want to teach settler colonialism in general, well, that's not explicitly anti-Semitic and we don't want to get involved in the culture wars. Wow. And that's a problem. Like uh, you're conditioning yeah. people to think in a certain way. And trust me, guys, if you're going to think about if you if you, the only idea you impart right. about why the world is the way it is, is settler colonialism, then people are going to draw the conclusions themselves that Israel is a settler colonial state. And I think that's the, the blind spot here. And that's how it gets played out a lot. So right. they'll, um, so they'll, they'll be okay with the, the ideology because they don't, they don't, they want to make peace with the left. And I, I like to point out, I like to point out the, an, a counterexample on the right, like I do a thought experiment. I said, let's say a school system, let's say in a red state or red school district, wanted to have an American first curriculum that was very much sort of replacement theory. Um, and um, and the original draft of that implicated Jews. It said that Jews were working behind the scenes to bring in immigrants to replace ordinary Americans. And you fought and you fought and you fought. And they said, okay, mm -hmm. we'll drop the Jews, but we're going to still teach the American first curriculum. Are you going to be comfortable with that? And of course, they wouldn't be comfortable with that. Right. Uh, but they will be comfortable about when it's settler colonialism. Unfortunately, too many of them. That, that's the fight we're trying to fight. No, I'm sorry, guys. It's not okay to go along with the settler colonialist curriculum either. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, let's talk a little bit more about what's happening on campuses today. Um, 
So I'm curious to get just your thought, your reaction, first off, to university leadership's um, inability to just blatant, like just upfront condemn terrorist activity. Like, why did they struggle with this so much? I'd love to get your take on that. Um, but additionally, let's talk a little about the DEI double standard, right? Which is, you know, they have these policies on campus. Oftentimes they'll enforce it against students on the right and say speech is violence. If you say a man is a man and a woman is a woman and it, those can't exchange with one another, then, uh, you know, then it, suddenly that's violent speech and you're causing mental harm to students and that's restricted on campus. But then, you know, if you're calling for literal violence against the people, that's suddenly protected speech. So can we tease out the differences there in the double standard, but then also maybe touch on the free speech laws in this country? But then again, yes, also, I want to hear your response to some of the, the lack of leadership on the, the university campuses on this front, too. Yeah. So if universities have been truly institutionally neutral on all of these questions, I'd be completely down with that. You know, mm-hmm. um, if, if you said, listen, if a university president had said, we're not going to take a position on Black Lives Matter, we're not going to take a position on Ukraine, we're not going to take a position on anything political because we're in the education yeah. business, and they don't want to then take a position on Israel, that's cool. That's fine. They're, that's not what they do, right? Like Yuval Levin, who's at the American Enterprise yeah. Institute, likes to talk about how institutions have become platforms for performance and they don't stay in their lane. So, um, so you know, I'd much prefer them not to be in the politics business at all, just as like I don't want synagogues to be in the politics business. I want institutions to do what they're good at for the most part, right? Right. And um, yet, if they're going to be in that lane, and they're going to opine about everything, and then is then fifteen hundred Israelis get slaughtered and taken captive in, in the most brutal fashion you can imagine. We expect you to speak out clearly about that as well, mm-hmm. and um, and and so there is a tremendous double standard. It's amazing how all of a sudden these university presidents have found their footing on institutional neutrality and free speech. Um, you know. Um, my namesake, David E. Bernstein, the professor at George uh, Mason, um, sort of hinted to me that maybe if we press back on this and force ourselves into the sort of intersectional conversation, and they have to be, they have to have one standard, maybe that's what will actually finally get them to be, um, you know, true advocates of free speech, because they don't want to include our narrative in the mix. They Hmm. don't want to have to be forced to be equal. So, so we should just force them to, to treat Jews just like everyone else, you know, and, and this is really where as a free speech advocate, and a opponent of anti-Semitism where my sort of values sometimes live in tension, hmm. you know, um, do, um, you know, I, I, I'd rather a university president allow all kinds of speech, including, you know, a really racist group to come to campus. And, and, um, and so, but they they won't, they're not going to do that. They treat Jews as a, as a, um, differently than they do with these other perceived protected groups. And as a result, then I have to say, okay, do I value equal protection more than I do freedom of expression? Hmm. Or um, And, and the, for me, the answer is no. For me, the answer is, I worry that if a campus can become a place where Ben Shapiro can't speak, then that's the kind of place that will produce anti-Semitism. So I'd rather err on the side of free expression and political commitments around freedom of expression than I would around trying the best we can to get equal protection. Um, And so we're treated as a protected minority, and therefore anything that we say about a hostile environment is taken seriously by the university. Right. No, I completely agree. I mean, 
first of all, I think a lot of folks do forget how um, how broad our free speech protections are in this country. And that's on purpose because a long time yes. ago, um, and one of the things that honestly has made America exceptional uh, is we decided that free speech, free expression was more important to us than, uh, than worrying about how other people felt about that speech. Uh, and so that is something that has been, you know, continuously reinforced in our, in our judiciary process. The Supreme Court has ruled time and time again that there's no hate speech, and this was unanimously, you know, hate speech or offensive speech exception to the First Amendment. And that's because, um, like you said, what it will lead to is discriminatory enforcement. You'll get, uh, and this is kind of what we're seeing universities try to grapple with is, look, they don't necessarily follow the laws, the rules that they enforce on their campus are not the law of the land. A lot of the times they're going to create policies against microaggressions, which are going to target students' constitutionally protected speech. Um, But if it's a private school or whatnot, they can kind of skirt around uh, the legal questions here. Um, But what they'll do is when they have a broad policy like that, they'll just enforce it, like we said earlier, on this kind of double standard method where they'll say like, look, we're going to enforce it based on the speech we uh, disagree with and we won't enforce it on the speech we agree with. And that's what ends up happening when you have these very subjective and broad um, terms used when it comes to like speech regulation. Yeah, and I would I would mostly oppose those, yet it's still galling when they're applied one way with another minority and they're not... Oh applied to protect my minority community, you know, yes. and that Jewish kids on campus are genuinely being, you know, um, are, are facing hostility from their fellow students. And they're, and you have what is equivalent to a Klan rally on a campus that basically, you know, supports what, um, what Hamas did to Israelis. This is before right. Israel right. had even dropped the bomb on Gaza. Right. They're already celebrating it. And they're, they have the hand glider meme and celebrating these brave yeah. people on the hand gliders who then go and, you know, murder people at a, at a Civilian concert. Innocence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's disgusting. I and mean, that yeah. is to me morally equivalent to a Klan rally. So, yeah, it is. So, so, you know, I'm, you know, and, and that's where I'm asking myself these questions. Okay. What what do you do in that in that environment that that protects both the constitutionality of free speech and also the culture of free speech that you want in universities? And I think you know if universities aren't going to go with the sort of everything goes on campus and they're not right now, I think I would say university president, you have free speech right. too, right? And you can exercise your own free speech and condemn that. Exactly. You don't have to show institutional neutrality. Um, yeah. on these questions. Um, now, let's say, like at University of California, Santa Cruz, you have two of your centers uh, that are supporting the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism Conference that's coming to your campus, which is really, you know, an attack on the Jewish right to have a state of their own. Right. And you you know, you're the university president that that's problematic. And you say it, by the way, you say, we don't like this. Okay. Maybe not in the explicit terms that we'd like, but they say, we don't like this. But what do you do? Do you, do you then force your centers to, to cut ties with the program? I think you can. I don't think Penn had to allow the University right. of Penn library to be a sponsor of that Palestine writers festival. When you had all these, you know, blatant anti-Semites coming to town and right. they could play host to it. They could rent space to it. But that doesn't yeah. mean that they have to they have to have any part of their university endorsing it. And what happens when a university department, let's say the gender studies department, as it did a few years ago, um, endorses, you know, the boycott movement toward Israel? Like, does does a university department have freedom, uh, have academic freedom 
I mean, I don't think that they do. I think a, an individual professor has academic freedom, but not, right. not a university department. So I think those are the kind of interventions that we could look at. University presidents can ask themselves, and I don't think they're doing a very good job. All of a sudden, they become great purists on, on free speech and then apply it in, a, in, in certain right. ways. Oh, yeah, because they'll sponsor, the university will sponsor and represent all of these DEI initiatives on campuses, all of these briefings on, um, you know, uh, transgenderism and, and other woke ideas. Um, and but they but they suddenly won't um, sponsor things like pro-life rallies, um, which, for example, Georgetown used to have an annual pro-life rally, but they canceled it when um uh, uh, when when the students were trying to hold it right around the time, I think it was, I want to say 2020, around that time period, maybe a little earlier. Um, but anyway, my, my point in saying all this is I think you're absolutely right. Look, there's nothing barring a university leader from saying that they condemn something or that they support something. They don't have to take, certainly they can take institutional neutrality, but neutrality requires full, it, you can't, be biased one day and then suddenly be neutral when the opposing view is being represented. Uh, you're either neutral or you're not. Um, so because universities have basically shirked any kind of neutral position uh, and they've decided that they are going to take more left-leaning positions, they can easily come out and take any other position they want. So yeah, like you said, don't sponsor. Uh, they don't have to be the direct sponsors of these types of pro-Hamas rallies or events. The departments can be, you know, they can forbid departments from sponsoring these types of things. Leadership could actually go out there and hold even their own rally if they wanted to for pro a pro-Israel rally. Sure. If they really wanted to take a position on this, there's literally nothing stopping them from doing this. Um, but so what I find fascinating is their difficulty to condemn just easy decisions to, to condemn terrorist activity because of how much they fear the woke mob. And I'm curious if you think it is mostly out of fear or if you think these leaders are are completely 100% bought in and they are on the side of the Palestinian the pro-Hamas Palestinians. I think it's I think that it's both, and it probably depends on the person you're talking about. Not just uh, pro-Palestinian, but they have that script that I talked about running through their brains that I talked about earlier mm. of like yeah. who's a marginalized community and who's not. Um, you know, th and these are there's no question there are complicated political dynamics. You know, um, the Jewish Community Relations Council in my area, Montgomery County, Maryland, um, took umbrage at these um, the school superintendent of Montgomery County Public Schools for issuing some mealy mouth statement, not even issuing any mm. statement. Right. There's a hundred thousand Jews in Montgomery County. Now the interesting thing is the school system and went through this anti-racist audit, and they started implementing a gender studies program that got the, the Muslim community up in arms. And there were something like 1,500 Muslims at a protest there, and they continue to protest their their uh, the enforcement of this new gender studies program in Montgomery County, um, where they're not being allowed to opt out of the class if they wish. Right. And, uh, yeah. and so now you can imagine if you're that superintendent who refused to allow the opt out provision on gender, now being being pressured by the Jewish community to condemn in no uncertain terms Hamas, and you're now stuck because you now don't want to make the Muslim community even angrier. So I think that there are some I think there's some interesting dynamics around that, um, you know, um, that that are that are both that are also political in nature. You know, you don't want to face your faculty senate or whatever else who has different opinions. Why are you siding with them? This is against our interests or whatever. And, you know, so they've got it coming from different directions. It's just that we we expect if we if institutions are going to speak out on certain social issues and there's something that's as eventful as this was. And as morally appalling as it was, we expect them to to be on our side at that point. 
Um, and um, and they and they couldn't bring themselves to do it. And we're going to hold them accountable for that. And I think for a lot of Jewish university donors, and we've seen a bunch of articles and mm -hmm. announcements of Les Wexner just pulled his money out of Harvard and um, and several other uh, key funders at Penn are pulling their money out and so forth. I, I think they understand now that it's not just about their unwillingness to support Jews in their time of need, but it's about the illiberal environments that they that they made. Mark Rowan, who wrote the piece of the Free Press about this, he's the chair of the board of the Wharton School. Right. So, you know, we've stood, I sat by, I sat by while these ideas and these um, ideologies were sort of ingrained into our university life and did nothing about it. And this is the, this is the, what it's produced. Right. And so and I think that that is the key insight. And that is what we want to sort of we want to urge in the days ahead. Yeah. I mean, the Wharton School, I mean, this is a, a business school that um, ha offers concentrations in DEI and ESG. So like he yes. yeah, he was on the chair of that board. That's interesting. I'm going to have to look that up because I'm very curious to see him kind of uh, walking all that back. Um so what is the solution? So, you know, to kind of wrap us up here, what, what can be done? How can Jews square the circle? Because as you've mentioned, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place in a lot of ways. Um, political leadership's in a between a rock and a hard place on the left. Like, you know, you've seen Chuck Schumer coming out condemning stuff. And then you see like Rashida Tlaib and obviously supporting Hamas and like the lies that are being perpetrated. Uh, but like, how do, how's the Democratic Party? How does the left, how does the, the Jewish left, how does everyone kind of figure this out? Do you see kind of a mass exodus from the, the left um, uh, from these various uh, groups? Or do you see them just kind of rewriting the playbook? Yeah, it's probably going to be ambiguous a bit. Um, I, what I'm hoping is that this creates a permission structure within the center left mainstream community to discuss these issues and to start thinking clearly about them. So at least it disempowers the voices that want to shut it down. That's number one. Number two, I think more and more American Jews are going to ask themselves the question, who should our allies be? And, and yeah. by the way, it doesn't mean that you have to lurch to the, all the way to the right. I mean, there are all these Asian American groups that come here that don't want you know their gifted and talented programs to be eradicated. And there are Black parents who don't want their kids to be taught that the system is rigged against them. There are allies. We know those people, those allies, people who fought against the, um, the San Francisco school board and uh, got them recalled, three members of the school board recalled, mm. are not radicals. They're moderates. They're political moderate central left people very often. They just they just came to this country. They're immigrant who came to this country and don't want the country they fled to to sound like the country they fled from. Yeah. I think like American Jews can make common cause with a lot of those groups and see themselves as part of a new coalition. I, and I'm trying to get that opportunity in the uh, front of the mind of more and more Jewish leaders. Um, so I think the dynamics could change if more and more uh, billionaires like we saw at Penn and Harvard start to push back. Um, if more and more leaders insist that we're going to have the conversation, if more and more people start on their own talking about it, even if on the farther left, who are not going to you know, join my organization, start to say, we have a problem here, guys. It just sets the sets right. the culture in a different direction. And I am hoping that's where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very curious to see how this eventually plays out. I don't think it's, um, I think the, what we've seen is just 
it's so covered by on social media now and by by most media sources that I don't see this get going away quietly. I, I do think that we're going to see some fundamental changes. At least that's my hope, honestly, because like you said, there there has been a lot of problems now that we're seeing essentially the culmination of um, being teased out of the the far left's movement um, in the Jewish community. Um, so I, I look forward to kind of seeing what that what that produces and what that looks like at the end. Um, well, thank you everyone for joining us today. David, that was a wonderful conversation. I, I really uh, enjoyed having you on. We're going to have to have you back on to continue covering this issue because I, I don't think the 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 unfortunately I don't think the anti-Semitism on college campuses is going away anytime soon. Um, but I, I think it's important that we cover um, what's happening on these institutions, especially for those who are not tracking it closely, um, so that we don't have to wait for incidents like this to see everything explode <laughs> out of the blue on campuses. Uh, so we can we continue keeping an eye on it. Um, all right, everyone. Uh, well, I'm Sharice Trump and David, that was well said.